Hello, I'm David Malky. I'm reading my story, Cancer, from the book collection, Machine of Death. For more information, please visit machineofdeath.net. Cancer, by David Malky. James spoke up as soon as he heard the door close. You went to that kid's house again, didn't you? His father sighed. His mother dropped her purse on the long stone table. It's late, she said. Go to bed. You didn't give him any money, did you? James stood up, following his parents up the stairs. I don't care if you sat there and nodded or sang songs or whatever you'd do there, but tell me, please tell me, when that basket came around, you just passed it down the line. James, I'm tired, his father said, and James heard in his voice that he was telling the truth. It had started with the doctor's visit a year ago. Dad had complained of trouble swallowing. The doctor had clucked disapprovingly at Dad's lymph glands. He had taken some blood and scheduled some tests. He had not been surprised by the results. There's anything you want to do, any place you want to travel, anyone you want to see, he had said. I would do it now. James had seen the brightly colored flyer in the mailbox, but hadn't given it much thought and had thrown it away with the supermarket coupons. So he was surprised to see it later, rescued from the trash can, its glossy color beaming from the fridge beneath a smiley face magnet. He plucked it down and had already begun to crumple it when Mom stopped him. Doesn't that look fun, she said. We're going to the one next week. In garish red and yellow, the flyer announced that you too could defeat the machine. A colorful cartoon hammer smashed a predictor box, starbursts flying out zanily. A beaming man in a tie beckoned to his new best friend, you. Bright blue type advertised an 800 number. Seats for the seminar were limited. Are you joking? James sputtered to Mom, deeply afraid that she wasn't. She hadn't been. And she and Dad had gone to the seminar, returning with bulging plastic bags crammed with flyers and handouts and brochures promising intensive weekend workshops and personal counselors and private consultations with Dr. Gene Eli himself. Dr. Eli, who, as far as James could tell, seemed to have a doctorate purely in smiling broadly, called himself an industry-leading expert in recovery medicine which meant that his literature was peppered with positive, boisterous terms about mankind's potential for self-healing, and how the psychic capacity of the human spirit could surpass the limitations of current medical science. Dr. Eli's follow-along lecture notes, carefully annotated in Mom's looping script, claimed that according to the laws of nature, ancient man should have become extinct. But mankind had, instead, evolved. According to Dr. Eli, the same impossible power that had allowed cavemen to conquer their murderous world already existed in you. With this power at your disposal, a slip of paper from a predictor box was no more a guarantor of death than chickenpox or diabetes. A thing to be conquered. A thing a person could overcome. By now, James had forgotten his skepticism, engrossed in Dr. Eli's argument. He sat with eyes unfocused for a time, suddenly certain of a raw, innate strength that lay latent in his blood in his father's blood. When he finally turned the page, he realized with a start that he couldn't make out the words. The sun had set, and the room was dark. He reached up and snapped on the lamp. Blinking through the brightness on the page, he was suddenly angry at his own belief. There were the prices for the weekend retreats, the private consultations, the intensive one-on-one -on -one counseling. Clearly, Dr. Eli and his team of recovery therapists were not altruists. James felt a knot of revulsion catch in his throat. When his parents returned from an afternoon doctor's appointment with another set of new pills for Dad, these with side effects that could damage his heart, James waited, 
until Mom had eased Dad into his recliner and turned on the TV before pulling her into the kitchen. These guys, this Dr. Eli, they're just taking your money, he said. She shook her head like she'd already considered the thought and dismissed it. All the meetings are free, she said. We're not going on their weekend retreats or anything. We can't afford them anyway. We're not giving them any money. And it brightens them up. It, it brightens both of us a little. What's so wrong with that? After these depressing appointments every day, what's wrong with a little hope for a change? James clenched his jaw before his mouth could spit out. But it's false hope. He stared at the cupboard door, willing his breathing to slow, willing his eyes to focus. When he turned back, Mom was halfway up the stairs. Dad still sat on his recliner, head leaning to one shoulder, eyes pointed at the TV but not really watching. James took a few steps into the living room, then sat on the couch. Dad rolled his head around, lifted a hand. James grasped it. Grip still strong, skin thick and calloused from decades of labor. His own hand felt thin and smooth in comparison. He felt young. How's it going? Dad asked him. How's that car doing? You still checking the oil every day? Oil, water? Yeah, James lied. Dad always bugged him about this, and James always forgot. Looks good. Keep checking it every day, every day, Dad said. If your oil gets too low, you'll blow that engine, and then it's a headache. They sat in silence for a few minutes, watching an antacid commercial, which was followed by a drug commercial that mainly consisted of old people pushing their grandchildren in swings and a long list of quickly read side effects. These pills, Dad said suddenly, sitting forward in his chair. These pills they give me, new pills all the time, new ones, new ones. The pills are worse than the disease. Heart problems, they said today. This one has risk of heart problems. I never had heart problems. Never in my life. What is this when the medicine is more problem than the, uh, than the first problem? I never heard of this. He settled back and released James' hand to fidget with the pillow beneath his lower back. The news came back on, the screen filled with sports scores. James looked up the stairway where his mother had disappeared, then leaned closer to Dad, trying to think of something to say, anything. He finally settled on, So you've been going to those meetings, huh? Dad looked over. Yeah, this Dr. Elo, Oli, whatever his name is. I think he's an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian. What kind of stuff does he say? Oh, I don't know, a bunch of baloney mostly. Dad said, and James breathed a sigh of relief, leaning back. Dad continued. He says all kind of junk about evolution. I don't know what he's saying. He wants to sell you a weekend retreat, they call it. With his fancy doctors, you go up in the mountains for a weekend, they take a look at you. Yeah, I read the brochure. It's a bunch of baloney, Dad said. Your mom, she likes to go, so we go. I, I don't know what it's about. But I tell you, here he looked over at James and leaned in close and lowered his voice. I tell you, some of the people at those meetings, old people, sick people, these people look like they died already. It's the last day before the seminar leaves town, Mom said. You know how much it would mean to your dad. I don't think those meetings mean as much to him as you think they do, James yawned, rolling over in bed, trying to pull the blankets from Mom's grip. She pulled them off, and James curled tightly into himself. We're going, she said, and they did. All three of them. Dr. Eli's seminars were held in the banquet hall at the Hilton. By the time James and his parents arrived, the place was already packed. Wheelchairs crowded the aisles. Near the front, a few gurneys lined the walls, attended to by nurses monitoring IV trees. 
As soon as he passed through the doors, James was hit by the smell of mineral ice and sweat. Dad handed him a paper name tag. Here, he said, and James saw that his own name had been pre-printed on the tag by a computer. Mom and Dad already wore theirs. They elbowed their way through the crowd, moving past sad-eyed old men and heather-haired old women, past fat men in sweatpants and sickly women with track marks. There weren't three seats together anywhere but the very back, in the corner. Dad carved a passage between a huge woman in a muumuu and a quivering girl holding a very young infant. James saw that the girl was trembling so hard that her baby was becoming dizzy. They sat on folding chairs next to a delicately poised middle-aged woman with elaborately sprayed hair. Her teenage son sat next to her, his bald, chemoed head resting on her shoulder. James watched her idly stroke the boy's neck and shoulders with her painted fingernails. The kid's bare scalp was textured with goose flesh. He shivered. Suddenly the room came alive with pounding music and lights overhead began to flash and smoke poured onto the far-off stage and a swell of cheering began to rumble the walls and James closed his eyes inside. I'm moving on to other cities, other states full of people like you, Dr. Eli said, pacing frantically back and forth on the stage, microphone clenched in one hand, the other hand circling like he was launching airplanes off a carrier. I'm meeting thousands of folks, telling them they don't have to be afraid, just like you're not afraid. Telling them what you already know. Telling them they don't have to be shackled to that little black machine in that doctor's office. He paused to allow raucous applause, taking a sip from a bottle of water on a stool. Telling them they can tap into that power that's in all of us. The power that's in you and you and yes ma'am it's in you too. The room burned with cheering. As soon as Dr. Eli had taken the stage, awash in strobe lights and sparklers, the entire massive family sitting in front of James had climbed onto their chairs, flailing their arms and shouting, and 40 minutes later they hadn't come down yet. James noticed that the bald boy and his mother were not clapping, or standing on their seats, or swaying with their eyes closed, or even paying much attention at all. The hairsprayed lady next to James wasn't so much as craning her neck, although she did occasionally check her watch. The boy's head now rested in her lap. The aisles were crammed with people eager to be a part of Dr. Eli's last seminar in town. More kept trying to shove their way into the room, pleading with the black-shirted security guards, rattling the locked doors elsewhere in the hallway. James watched his parents. Mom held her purse on her lap with both hands, and Dad sat slumped in his chair, occasionally shifting uncomfortably. Was this what he'd been so worried about? Dr. Eli welcomed a line of people onto the stage to share their experiences. A tearful young woman clutched Dr. Eli's microphone with both hands. He wrapped his arm around her shoulder. My, my paper said airplane, she said to a loud chorus of boos from the audience. Dr. Eli quieted them with a look, nodding to the woman to continue. My paper said airplane, she went on, and I was scared to go anywhere near a plane after that. Laughter. No plane rides, no airports. I couldn't pick my brother up from his trip. I couldn't visit my grandma out in Chicago. We had to move because our house was too close to the, to the flight path. I couldn't get no other job. I had to ride the bus every morning back to the same old neighborhood. I was scared every morning to get too close to the airport, but I had no other job. I had no other place to go. The crowd was quiet now, watching as she blotted her eyes with a mascara-stained tissue. Dr. Eli squeezed her shoulder. But Dr. Eli told me, you don't got to be afraid. You don't got to live your life that way, she said. A few scattered cheers from the back of the room. He told me we have control. We don't live our lives because of what some box says, what some piece of paper tells us. We are human beings. We are free. We are alive. The room erupted with approval. The family in front of James screamed their lungs out. 
James looked over and realized that his mother was pressing her hand to her eyes. He met her look with his own, and she laughed, embarrassed, and turned away. Dr. Eli's staff brought a small metal box out onto the stage. It was shiny black with vents along both sides and a small control panel on the front. Its lights were dim, and its LCD screen was dark. The circular receptacle on the right side was empty, no thin glass vial of blood, and the printer had no inch-long strip of paper protruding like a tongue from its serrated mouth. But all the same, it was a predictor box. The black square loomed huge on the video projection screen, and when Dr. Eli's assistant handed a sledgehammer to the sniffling woman, the crowd went nuts. She heaved it up and brought it down on the box, sending plastic knobs and circuit board fragments whirling into the audience. James saw that a stack of predictor boxes waited at the rear of the stage, one for each person in line for the microphone. They kept coming, one after the other. My wife will tell you, I'm a new man. I stay up late, I leave the house. Yesterday I did it. I drove to the store for the first time in five years. Finally, I took my grandchildren to the zoo. Thank you, Dr. Eli. Thank you, Dr. Eli, for giving me my life back. God bless you, Dr. Eli. Thank you. James was speechless. Mom and James kept their hands on either side of Dad, helping him step down from the curb and into the Hilton parking lot. They passed through the knot of people at the weekend retreat sign-up tables, seeking out the night air, finding it cool and calming. I think that was really interesting, James said. Mom gave Dad a knowing look, then smiled at the sidewalk. This is just a lot of junk, Dad said. They don't cure you. This Egyptian, he doesn't heal you. It's just a bunch of baloney. Oh, well, it seems like he helps a lot of people get over their hang-ups, James said. I mean, those predictor boxes really mess up a lot of people. These predictors, predictors, they are a hazard, Dad said. People don't realize this, scientists, idiots. They are a real hazard. The lady with the bald sun stood underneath a lamppost, a stack of bright paper in her hands, shoving pages into the stream of people. Mom took one. The bald boy watched them walk away, twisting his fingers around each other as if he were kneading clay. James watched the boy until he grew uncomfortable. The boy never looked away. The new flyer was bold black text from a home printer, photocopied onto yellow paper. Tired of Dr. Eli's lies? James picked the paper from the floor, where it had fallen as they entered the house last night. No more cheap theatrics. Ready for real healing? It read. Dad called him from the other room. James put the flyer on the table by the door and ran into the kitchen, where Dad was struggling with the juicer. Mom makes me some of that carrot juice, he said, holding a bundle of carrots in his hand. James took the carrots and fed them into the juicer, one by one, until he had filled a glass with carrot juice. When he turned around with the glass in his hand, his father was sprawled on the floor. There he is, Dad slurred, his eyes slowly focusing, urging the doctor to look to the doorway. This is my son. This is my son, James. James shook the doctor's hand and hugged his father, his hands recoiling at the spine, thin beneath the paper gown, the shoulder blade jutting into his palm, the ribs, each one distinct. Dad's face was swollen. He worked his jaw like he was chewing taffy, he took a sip of water, and it took him three tries to swallow. I'd like to watch him here for a few days, the doctor said. He had another episode last night that required the shock paddles. I think this is some cause for concern. Hey, my heart is acting up now, Dad said, fighting to get the words out. I never had problems with my heart, never. 
it's possible the medication he's been taking for the lymphoma may have adversely affected the cardiac system, the doctor said. I'm really worried that there is a potential for arrhythmia. I'm going to prescribe some treatment that will hopefully keep his heart running smoothly. Pills, pills, more pills, Dad said. Everywhere you go, they give you pills, one pill for this, one pill for that. The doctor wrote on his prescription pad. Does he have any history of respiratory or kidney problems? After Mom arrived, James began to wander the hospital's halls, trying not to glance into open doors as he walked. When he did, he saw the same thing over and over. Death on hold, waiting, biding its time, typically with its mouth open, breathing shallowly, its eyes either closed or open, staring at nothing. He realized for the first time that he was scared. He did not know if he would have the opportunity to complete his relationship with his father, and it worried him. He didn't know if he would trust himself to seize the opportunity, even if it presented itself. He wondered how long it would be before he would no longer be able to recognize his father in the figure that lay in the bed down the hall. The father that had once hoisted him onto his shoulders or balanced his tiny body on the palm of his hands. The man in James's memory was strong and robust and did not have the dim, sallow eyes that the man down the hall seemed to have. James wondered, not for the first time, why his father had read that slip of paper from the predictor box in the first place, and if it would have even mattered had he not. Who is this kid? What makes him qualified to do anything? James asked, perhaps more bitterly than he meant to. His mother glanced over at the living room where Dad lay sideways on the couch and gestured for James to keep his voice down. His website says, His website? James sneered. Mom sucked in her breath, held it for a second. A lot of people say he's helped them feel better. People? What people? People we know? Sick people. I don't know. They're on the website. His website? Of course it's going to tell you. We already went to see him. James stopped short and closed his mouth. His mother turned toward the living room and put a hand on her cheek, and then leaned backward so that James caught her by the shoulders. She leaned into her son, and James wrapped his arms around his mother. And she sighed, and she spoke softly. We saw him at Dr. Eli's seminar. The, the, the kid sitting with his mother, the, you know, bald head. James nodded. Mom went on. His name is Tim, and he, he's just the sweetest little guy. She leaned her head on James's shoulder. His own mother was smaller than he was, more frail, tired from shuffling her husband to doctor's appointments every day, tired from administering pills and treatments and praying late into the night, tired from waking up early to make sure he woke up at all. Tim said he could reach inside you, she continued as she and James watched the slowly heaving body that lay on the couch a room a world away. He said he could close his eyes and feel inside you and, and feel what was wrong and move his fingers around and fix it, just like, just like running his fingers through your hair, just like untying a tangled knot. Hmm, James said because he didn't know what else to say, and also because he felt so sad for the woman that he held in his arms and wished that she wouldn't believe in things that would just disappoint her. And he also wished that maybe it were true. He said he could feel the atoms in your body, she said, whispering now, still looking away, still watching her husband sleep. He said he could reach into your dad's throat and feel the tumors and, and pluck them off like strawberries. Did he? James said. No, Mom said. James's parents went back to see Tim and his mother with the painted fingernails, even though they didn't bring up the subject with James again. 
James found Dr. Eli's brightly colored flyer under a stack of unread magazines and looked it over again and laughed and shook his head and thought of all the people who'd read that tiny fortune cookie slip of paper torn from a predictor box and who had never again gone near buses or bathtubs or microwaves, people who'd stopped smoking or drinking or started smoking or drinking, people who knew there'd be no risk in skydiving and so sat there, stone-faced as they fell 10,000 feet through the air, never having any fun at all. Most of all, he thought of Tim, the skinny, bald kid lying curled in his mother's lap in the back row of the Hilton's banquet hall. Did he have leukemia or something? What was his game? And what did he want with James's parents? And why couldn't he heal himself? So one night, James stayed up late and confronted his parents as they came home from Tim's house and made sure they hadn't given him any money and watched his father take slow steps up the stairs and after they disappeared upstairs, James sat alone on the couch and exhaled and admitted to himself, well, really, when it came right down to it, what's the harm? The ambulance woke James up. The siren grew louder and then stopped, deadly close, and James was on his feet instantly. Mom let the paramedics in the front door, and James stood in the hallway as strange men shouted to one another, 100 cc's of this and that, and finally they eased him down the narrow stairs on a backboard and slid him onto a gurney, and James took his father's hand for a brief second before the red doors slammed and he was gone. It's his heart, the doctor said. He hasn't been taking his medication. James stared at his mother, who looked quickly away down the hall. He was worried about the side effects, she finally said. The doctor took a few moments to choose his words. At this point, I'm not too concerned about the side effects, he said. She looked up at him and got his meaning, and James felt her weight press into him again. Dad, you have to take your pills. His father looked up from his prone position on the pull-out couch bed, his throat swollen like a bullfrog, his breathing thick and labored, his face drizzled with a week's worth of downy beard. Get that junk away from me, he managed. James sucked his breath and leaned back on the recliner, drumming his fingers on the leather arm, and sighed. I don't know what to tell you. The doctor says the pills are going to keep your heart strong. You don't, you don't want that to happen again like the other night. The doctor is a crook, Dad gasped. Those pills are what's a killer. Worse than the lympho, whatever, whatever you call it, lymphoma. The pills are the killer. Dad, I never had heart problems, Dad cried, suddenly strong, fidgeting to get an elbow underneath himself. James leaned over, but Dad struggled, riding himself on the couch. I never had any heart problem whatsoever until that crook gave me those pills. And now look at me. Now look at me. That's why you have to take them. Yeah, call him a crook. Maybe he is, but your heart will get worse unless you take the pills. And there's nothing you can do about that. Nothing I can do, Dad said, shaking his head, trying to laugh, but it came out a choke. He eased himself back down onto the couch. Nothing I can do until it wrecks my lungs, my kidneys, right? Same old story. James handed him the glass of water, rattling the pills in his hand, but Dad didn't take it. At least I know this heart won't kill me. Whatever that Mickey Mouse box is good for, at least the heart won't kill me. That's not necessarily true, James said. It's kind of vague, I think. Dad looked at him, chewing his words, forcing them out. So what then? Every day I wake up, it's worse. I can't talk, I can't swallow. Now you want me to take pills so I can't breathe? I can't take a piss? Isn't this bad enough? Okay, Dad. James said, setting the glass on the coffee table hard enough that it sloshed onto the magazines. Go and see that kid, Tim, then. Go and see him. Is that going to make you feel better? 
At least he has some hope for me, Dad said, and James bit his lip. Tim's house was one half of a duplex on Brightwood Avenue, a wrongly named street in a part of town without sidewalks. Brown front lawns ran straight into the cracked asphalt of the road, or at least they would if they were visible. Cars choked the sides of the road, and Mom had to park a block and a half away. The people at Tim's were sadder than at Dr. Eli's, and some were sicker. Tim's mother welcomed everyone inside with polite, weak handshakes. James stood in the corner, trying to shuffle as close to the wall as possible so that everyone had room to sit. The air was fogged with incense and something that sounded like Enya being played on a cheap boombox. Everyone kept quietly to themselves, occasionally shuffling one family at a time down a narrow hallway. The CD was on its second repeat when Tim's mother called James's parents to Tim's bedroom. Tim's bed had Snoopy sheets on it, and model spaceships dangled from the ceiling, but there were no video games, no books, no other toys that would suggest that a child lived here. Tim sat cross-legged on his bed, thin and tired in the dimness of a single overhead lamp, and James almost gagged on the incense as he walked through the door. He and Mom helped Dad to sit on a mound of pillows, then sat beside him. Tim was quiet, praying perhaps, his eyes closed, and he sat that way for some time before Dad started to moan loudly with discomfort. Thank you for coming back, Tim said softly, and when he opened his eyes and saw James, he froze for a moment, looking caught, looking terrified. Then he recovered and extended his hands. Mom took one, and James, with some reluctance, the other, warm and wet. They both took Dad's hands. Do you believe that you have the power to be healed, Tim said. Dad said nothing until Mom nudged him, and even then he just murmured. Do you believe in the power that God has given to every man of his creation? Tim said, louder, and Dad said, Yes. Do you believe that the power within you is strong enough to move mountains, because it is from God? Tim said, his voice strong now, and Dad said, Yes, and Mom moaned. Remember to keep the flame of faith strong, for there is nothing I can do for you if you do not believe, Tim said, softer now, and handed Mom's hand and James's hand to each other. He rose to his knees on the bed, his eyes closed, and started to flex his hands as if preparing to play the piano, breathing sharply, quickly. It is your belief that allows the power to grow, Tim said, and opens a channel for me to reach into you. James watched his father closely, watching his head bob heavily on his neck as he slumped more deeply into the pillows. Tim's hands moved deftly around one another, tracing intricate patterns that might have been tying bows with string. And Dad coughed and made a noise and spoke in syllables, but not words. After ten minutes of this, Dad was not healed, but it was time to bring in the next family. So James helped his parents to their feet and nodded to Tim's mother with a tight smile and concentrated on helping Dad into the car before he said anything. I think that kid is dangerous, he finally said. They drove home in silence. Dad was sleeping downstairs now, on the pull-out couch bed, and James helped him out of his shoes and socks. His feet were swollen, but his legs were thin as James's arms. James lifted Dad's feet onto the bed and covered them with the blanket. How you doing? he said to his father, because he had so much to say, but didn't know how to say any of it. What should I say? Dad said. Should I lie? James asked his mother not to go back to Tim's. What exactly are you afraid of? Mom said, brushing her hair in the darkness of her bedroom as James leaned on the full-length mirror behind her. That he'll get better? That he'll feel better, if nothing else? Like he's trying to do something instead of sitting around the house, feeling awful, waiting, waiting to... 
waiting around? I'm afraid he'll think it's his fault, James said, and his mother stopped brushing. When she didn't say anything, he spoke again. I'm afraid he'll feel like he didn't believe enough. Like if, if only he could have had more faith or something. Like if only he'd tried harder, then Tim could heal him. And it's his fault if he doesn't get better. I don't think that, Mom said, putting the brush away. I know, but does he? James followed her down the hall, where she took a towel from the hall cupboard. I don't think so. How do you know? She whirled and faced him, and her voice was strong, but he saw that her eyes were very wet. Because I know him, she said, and walked back to her room and closed the door, and he heard the water come on in the shower. So do I, he said. Bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies, Dad said slowly. And thank you for all the blessings you give us. And I believe that you have the power to heal me, if it is your will. And I ask that I be allowed to continue in your service. They sat on the back porch, the sun a red ball on the horizon. I guess this is the end of my rope, Dad said. James thought of lots of things to say, but nothing sounded right. So he put his arm around his father, and they watched the sun set together. Dad was buried on a tall hill, overlooking the valley where their house rested, and James stayed around his mother all the time for as long as he could, while she took the chance to sleep in late and rest and recuperate. The few days before the funeral had been distressing for him, because he found that the truth of Dad is gone had begun to usurp his memories, retroactively erasing his father from his recollections. So he'd had to fight that with photographs, reconstructing a skeleton in his mind of who his father had been, finding it sometimes not aligning perfectly with what he thought he remembered. And he hated that the sharpest picture he had of Dad was of a weak animal in a hospital bed, and he fought to recall the vigorous, looming figure of his youth. Sometimes he succeeded. The last few days had been the hardest. Mom never left his side in the hospital room, sleeping in the hard wooden chair. After a few days, Dad started talking about things that weren't there and staring off into the distance, and then he would call your name and squeeze your hand and you wouldn't be able to understand the words through the thickness in his voice. On the last day, he hadn't spoken at all, and by the time James arrived in the morning, Mom said that he'd stopped squeezing her hand back, and he lay there in the soft white bed, Sucking air like a fish on land, then lying deathly still. Gasping, sucking, wrenching the oxygen from the atmosphere by force, then slumping. Spent from the effort. After a few hours of this, the gasping became less pronounced, and the hills and valleys of the heart monitor became an undulating stream, and the shrill sound of the monitor's alarm became annoying, and they turned it off. Then there was nothing left to do but watch his face turn yellow and his jaw stop moving and the man who was James's father become something other than a human being, something that was diseased meat and bone and cloth, that there was nothing of dad in at all. And they cried and held each other and sat very still for a very long time, weeping into each other's arms. And that night, when they came outside to the parking lot, they found that Mom's car was dead, that its battery had been drained from the lights being left on. And without any further tears, they left it in the parking lot. A shell without a driver. James wondered if his father had heard him on that last day, whether his unresponsive hand and closed eyes belied some deep consciousness that had survived buried inside the seizing functions of his body, 
and if the echoes of his voice had carried all the way to it. For whatever it was worth, he told the mute dad not to be ashamed or guilty, that it wasn't his fault that he'd done everything he could, that he was loved. He wondered if dad had been disappointed in him for not believing in Tim, or for not attending the meetings, or for continuing to push the medication that he so despised. Dad hadn't taken any pills at all the last month or so, but his lymphoma by then had spread to the stomach and lungs and bones, and so there wasn't really any point, and James felt bad for arguing, for making a big deal about the pills, for causing his father stress about that and Tim and everything, for refusing to just go along. He stood on that new patch of grass, where he could very easily picture the long oaken box a man's height under his feet, and recalled his reluctance to view the body, to have his recollections of the strong man of his childhood contradicted by physical reality. But it hadn't been bad. The figure in the box was just a thing of tissue and skin, and posed no threat to the memories that were now the only thing James had left. But even still, it was something. It was physical. It was better than ether and void and thought and dream stuff, and so he stayed there on the green hill overlooking the valley as the wind blew heavenward. And in that lonely moment, he thought about Tim and wondered if he would call Tim to ask him to untie the knot he felt deep in his guts. And then James wondered if there wasn't something of his father in him after all. For more stories about the Machine of Death, visit our website, machineofdeath.net. This audio file is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means feel free to share it, send it around, or adapt it however you like, but please don't sell it. I'm David Malky. I do interesting things at wondermark.com. Thanks for listening.